Episode 8 of the Rugby League United podcast. We've uh, been headlining, focusing on some of the headline makers, the sports headline makers on this series so far. This week I'm keen to get to know a little bit more about one of the leading lights behind the headlines, a man who has been added to the RFL role of honour. The RFL Benevolent Fund has been involved and was indeed developed uh, for players, families uh, and those suffering life-changing injuries uh, and sometimes far worse than that playing the sport of rugby league and it's their general manager Steve Ball who's our guest this week. Hi Steve. Hello. Uh, how are you first of all and how's, how's this period been for you? Uh, well it's certainly not normal um, and it's even even worse for those people who I, I deal with uh, in the line of work. Those people that have had um, catastrophic injuries and are at home, I think they've felt it more than anybody else uh, in the entire country to be honest. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about your your line of work and and the importance of the RFL Benevolent Fund. But in, in terms of the job that you do, how has it how has that been impacted by where we've been the last few months? Uh, well, you would think with no rugby league taking place, it would be very quiet. Uh, but the demands of, of the Benevolent Fund over the past three four months uh, have, have been absolutely massive. Um, we look after people who have had serious life-changing injuries. Uh, a lot of them rely on healthcare workers and people coming to visit them, uh, not just for their physical well-being, but for the mental uh, uh, state of mind as well. Uh, and their world's been absolutely turned upside down. Uh, they've been forced into shielding. Um, they've been very reliant on healthcare workers. Uh, at the worst, uh, some of the health workers were coming uh, to attend them uh, and, and to look after them. And of course, the visitors who come round and cheer them up periodically, family and friends, uh, have been absent because they haven't been allowed in the house. So it's been a very strange and, and stressful time for a, a lot of the lads uh, who have uh, sustained these injuries and the Benevolent Fund oversees some, some of the things uh, that we can support them with. And I guess the danger is, in the circumstances we're in now, and I know this myself through the conversations I've had with my, my friend, Rob Burrow, who I speak to every week, is that at, at times where you want to step in and improve things, it's actually going to deteriorate because for the reasons you've just mentioned. Absolutely. We've had uh, inquests uh, cancelled. Um, uh, Scott Stevenson, um, uh, who tragically died playing for the RF against the army, his inquest was postponed. And you can imagine uh, the upset and anguish of his family, having prepared mentally uh, for an inquest, only to see it postponed uh, and planned sometime in the future. Where we've had uh, people like Mossy Masu uh, in Pinderfield, uh, who relies heavily on visitors coming to see him and intensive uh, physio. Um, first of all, he was denied access uh, to people visiting him. And then uh, we had to battle hard for him to stay in Pinderfields as long as we could, as long as he could, in order that he could have that intensive physio uh, that wasn't available once he got home. Uh, so there's a whole range of, of, of things that have been strange uh, of being demanding and has uh, taken its toll uh, on, on some of the you know what we call beneficiaries but some of the lads we look after 
Um, we'll, we'll come on to some of those, uh, the lads that you look after, as you uh, as you put it, and and the way that uh, the Benevolent Fund works and ha has evolved. Uh, tell me about you, first of all. I want to understand about you and how you how you got into this line of work. What was your first job? Uh, I was a teacher originally, uh, going back some years. Um, I was the first one that introduced Jason Robinson. Uh, the, the so-called Rugby Union World Cup star. I had him as a nine-year-old at Cross Flats uh, Middle School in Leeds uh, and a rugby league nut. Uh, rugby league is my sport. I love it. I cherish it. Um, I think its values are something that we can live our lives by and I'm proud to be part of that family. Uh, I played a little bit of rugby league, uh, coached um, both open age and junior teams and school teams. Uh, in my twenties, and then uh, by a set of circumstances, um, I became chairman of Battle Rugby League Club. I'd been moved into the town three months earlier. Uh, I, I adore the sport. I enjoy the camaraderie, uh, the fun it brings, and sometimes the heartache it brings as well. It's it's uh, it's, it's very similar to being in, in in love with a somebody of the opposite sex and. Uh, you know, sometimes it's great and sometimes it's just <laughs> not so great. <laughs> um, I'll be married yeah. to it for the rest of my life. Sure, yeah, and yeah, I think a lot of us kids can associate with that. The the description of a rugby league family at, at times from from those who colleagues I've I've worked with who, who've never really understood rugby league have kind of mocked me for for that reference. But what you've just described kind of encapsulates what what people mean when they they put it like that, I suppose. It's interesting, I often hear people use the expression family of rugby league without truly understanding it. Yeah. Um, particularly, I know a, a particular uh, former chairman of the rugby league who used it uh, indiscriminately and never quite understood what it meant. Uh, that camaraderie, that sense of belonging. And I think you've got to have bought into it over a number of years. And we've seen when tragedy uh, happens, uh, in such circumstances, how the family of rugby league rally round more than any other sport. All your wealthy sports, I'll include football amongst that with its billionaire owners uh, from the oil rich states of the Middle East. It can't hold the light to rugby. Uh, and I'm very proud to, to coordinate all those efforts at times uh, with people sometimes who have very little resource but a great deal of, of passion and understanding. I'll, I'll just quantify that uh, with an example. Uh, when the tragedy of, of Lizzie Jones uh, uh, lost her husband, uh, Danny playing for Keith Lee, um, we actually set up a trust fund, uh, the Benevolent Fund did, uh, for a, a twins, uh, Phoebe and Bobby, and we raised like a third of a million pounds, which seems a great deal of money, but uh, the, the twins were five months old. If you divide that by 18, it's not such a vast amount of money uh, when you talk about annual income. But £120,000 of that £300,000 plus came in bucket collections. Uh, that's a lot of 20 pences. And the vast majority of the fundraising uh, for Danny Jones's widow and children came from women because uh, they empathise with, uh, obviously, uh, Lizzie, and that empathy showed, showed through. 
and it was it was great to see our people's small contribution uh, the momentum again from that uh, a, a mum in her late 20s uh, by herself uh, being widowed uh, being left with two five month old children very proud of rugby league in, in that sense uh, and the contribution made by everybody uh, throughout the game you know players under 11 teams that donated pocket money uh, to people doing bucket collections to people doing fundraising just being part of that was something very special for me do you think um just one more on i guess on on the discussion of the rugby league family and what it is and what it stands for and how it can have that proud boast perhaps alongside other sports do you think that is the key word you just said empathy and why there is this uh, come together at times of adversity within the sport which you would argue is is perhaps stronger than sports like football where there is that void between the person who goes down and watches it and the millionaire on the pitch well i look at wembley sometimes i used to go down as a, as a kid from school we used to love uh, looking out for shirts and where they came from and we can go to matches as a family, wear our shirts with pride. Uh, again, I think the women's influence on the game is, is apparent, that family value uh, of how to behave. Uh, and it's great when I go on holiday, I look for people in witness t-shirts or St. Helens or Wigan or Leeds or whatever, have a bit of crack and it's an instant friendship. Whether that would be the same if you were fans of, uh, of Murray or Federer or cricket supporters, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm very much pleased to be part of that family. It's a very tight-knit group, uh, almost uh, isolationist that time. Uh, I live up in Hexham, and I must know every rugby league supporter in, uh, in Hexham, and I cherish everyone that I meet <laughs> every month. Uh, it, it's an, a natural introduction of, uh, did you watch the match? Yeah. Uh, what did you think of it? And... Uh, how do you think that the Great Britain team or your team will be performing next year, or hopefully next year, uh, as time goes on? You know, I, I used to be the opposite when I went on a holiday and I saw rugby league shirts. I used to hide because I used to think they would come and have a go at me for something I've said in commentary or something I've written about <laughs> their team. <laughs> I, I well, I can only that. assume your commentary's got better over the years. <laughs> underneath any holiday tables. But I would imagine you'd like to do so now. Yeah, yeah, no. No, I, I, kind, of, I kind of joke about that. Um, we'll talk a bit more about your role and what it entails uh, in a sec. Um, but it is about giving, it's about supporting others. But I want to understand how you got to do that. You mentioned, I mean, your, your CV, fairly impressive, the clubs uh, you've worked for, Hull FC, uh, Hunslet, RFL, Leeds, you mentioned Batley and into you into your current role. So you must have some, I'm trying to get to know you a little bit here, you must have some self-career drive about you, even though what the job you do now is fairly kind of... Uh, I, I was very privileged. I was very privileged because um, when I was at Batley, I was involved in something called Batley City Challenge, uh, which involved uh, raising money uh, for the community uh, and then spending it in terms of economic re regeneration. I believe Batley at that time when I was chairman got something like three and a half million pounds, which was in the late 80s, extraordinary. Um, and I saw the power of sport then and the power of, of, of connecting with the community. Um, 
very proud of, of what I did at, at Batley. It was, it was my first love uh, as such, uh, which is something very topical. There was uh, in, 19, uh, in the early 1990s, there was the worst uh, race riots in Europe, in Dewsbury at Savile Town. And Batley was literally uh, three miles from the epicenter of those race riots. We weren't touched by it at all because we'd identified uh, with the Battle community. We had outreach programs as such. And I realised that was the future uh, of, of rugby league, for it to connect with its communities and represent everybody uh, from 103 to 3 in terms of providing something uh, for them. And people saying, you know, when they go on holidays, I'm from Battley, do you support Battley Rugby League Club? Yes, I do. Uh, and that uh, really uh, was what I wanted to be involved with. I got involved uh, because of the three and a half million with doing some major projects, um, some in the community, some physical. Uh, because I had that capacity to raise money, I was always wanted in, in clubs uh, to be part of, of their team. It's uh, anybody who's been involved full time in sport, in rugby league for 35 years, uh, must be doing something right, and it is the fact I, I was at that capacity uh, to gain money and do projects and connect with communities. I can only think of Gary Hedrington at, uh, at Leeds, who's been around, I think, slightly longer than me, about a year or so longer than I, and uh, I had the privilege of, of working alongside Gary uh, when I was at Leeds for 10 years. Um, the, the period that that you've just outlined and that you were involved with those clubs. And this is a theme that's really come through quite strong on this, on this podcast series uh, through various players and coaches who've grown up in this macho world that we've come to know. And I guess it's a stereotype we're trying to get away from in, in rugby league, but, but something that um, certainly Dennis Betts talked about and Reese Lynn talked about that, um, that young lads coming through would have to uh, kind of hide their feelings because it was so macho. And no one really talked about the welfare side, the mental welfare side. What, what were your experiences of that through the clubs you've worked in? It's strange. A, a lot of clubs uh, had a philosophy that players were a commodity. Some of the players didn't help themselves either uh, in, in, in their attitude to the clubs. It was a lot easier um, when clubs returned the player register and players had been there for six, eight, ten years. Uh, as a matter of, of normality. Now it's slightly more difficult uh, in the sense that there's a great rotation of, of players. Uh, and as, as such, uh, our responsibility is just to broaden it out. You know, the people who supported Danny Jones were all from Keithley. Uh, they were from the wider rugby league community. And I think uh, what I have seen, uh, yes, rugby league is, is very tough. But there's a realisation from the spectators that when something absolutely dreadful happens, it's the responsibility of us all, not just those supporters who support a specific team where that player has been injured. So you've, um, you've been involved with the Benevolent Fund since 2006, was it? Yeah, 2006. I've seen most things. I've seen a change in the Benevolent yeah. Fund. Um, it was very much uh, uh, what we tried to do originally was re-engage uh, people who'd been lost to the game. 
in the 80s, and I can go back even longer than that, uh, a couple of thousand pounds were, were raised for a player. And then, even though his injuries was uh, life-changing, uh, it was forgotten about. Um, so what we've tried to do is, originally, to, to connect all those people together. We've got a great social uh, uh, team as, uh, as well. If you understand the Benevolent Fund, I, I use this as a story, that every year uh, I take a group of uh, rugby players uh, to, uh, the, uh, to Wembley who happen to be disabled. I don't take a group of disabled people to Wembley to watch the rugby. They're as much part of the rugby league family as any other part. And over the years, um, the Benevolent Fund is, is for amateurs, it's for professionals, it's for referees and coaches. And more recently, about 10% of all our cases uh, are, are women who play the game. We had a recent case of somebody who got injured and had to go into hospital. Uh, and, and we supported them by paying their uh, childcare costs. Now, that would have been unheard of 10 years ago, but that as the games evolved, uh, so is our responsibility to all those players that play the game. So if the initial goal or the initial aim of, of, the, of the RFL's Benevolent Fund was to re-engage players who perhaps have, or people have been lost to the game, did subsequent events, and you've outlined a couple already, did subsequent events um, kind of shape the course of, of, what, of what you were there for? It's strange, because um, you, you would think uh, people who've, who've had a terrible injury is connected with the game would be anti the game of rugby league. And that couldn't be far, farther from the truth. Uh, there were the forgotten people of the game. And I go back to the, to the actual origin uh, of the Benevolent Fund, which was, uh, um, as you said, only set up uh, uh, in the mid-2000s uh, uh, as such. Uh, and it was, there was a, a generalisation that if somebody got injured, it wasn't about a bucket collection for two months. It was about a lifelong commitment. Uh, and the injuries of, of Danny Scott, who played, played for uh, Mole Green in Huddersfield, uh, and Matt King, who played for uh, the academy team at London Broncos, really highlighted that uh, it was a lifelong commitment. We'll raise some money for you because of the immediate problems uh, such an injury would bring. But it was that lifelong commitment to say it's not just about five, ten thousand pounds It's about meeting at Wembley. It's about refurbishing your house. Uh, I'll quote the case of a, a lad called John Burke, who, who was a great friend of mine. Um, he played for Workington and, and got injured when he was 21. And for over 30, 30 odd years, um, they put the kettle on with a walking stick. Now that, that can't be right. Um, and just being part of uh, re-establishing as, as the new normal or as good as the new normal gets. Uh, we, we contributed to the refurbishment of his kitchen. Uh, it didn't have to go to the swimming baths to, to, to get a shower. And it's we restored uh, people's dignity who'd, uh, who'd struggled through no fault of their own. How, I just think how, how I can put this, but 
I mean, through the remarkable work that you're doing and, and you've outlined, how can you make um, so confidently that lifetime commitment when, as a charity, we know that funds aren't bottomless and you don't know how many cases and how many severe cases there are going to be. So that must give some anxiety to you financially. It's like, how, how can we make these commitments? Uh, the first thing I say to people uh, in injuries, and I, again, recently, uh, Mossy Massoon, uh, when I saw him at Leeds General Infirmary, uh, there was this enormous six foot seven, uh, you know, Samoan prop forward, uh, and his wife generous, uh, like, let me visit him and speak to him by myself. Uh, I held his hand and I said, uh, I'm here to help, and you and I are going to become great friends. Um, and I spoke not just for Steve Blow or the Benevolent Fund, I spoke for the whole of Rugby League. I don't think I, I would have said that <laughs> a month before I'm holding his hand, but, uh, you know, and he smiled because it, it doesn't come with a script um, when you have a terrible injury. Uh, those people that are injured are more concerned often for the families than they are for themselves. Uh, but we give that commitment to support. And while whether I have confidence in the family of Rugby League, I know we can give that commitment to support them for as long as we can. What did he say back to you after you said you were uh, there? Well, he, he, he smiled. Um, he couldn't move uh, at, at all. Uh, I took that as, as a yes. Uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, when you're in situations, you don't want to hang around and have a conversation. Uh, for an hour or so, but he knew, and his wife knew, that throughout you know, the journey that he was about to embark on, which must have been terrifying for both him and, and his wife and his family, uh, that we were there as a, a guide and support. And often for the, for the club involved as well. Paul Kingston Rovers hadn't seen anything like it in, in their history. And it was a guide for, for both Mossy and his family and for the club because I drew on experiences that, that I had with other people. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's proved, and, and he tells me, and his wife tells me, it's proved invaluable to him. Uh, you've, you've just kind of second-guessed my next question, I suppose, the word experience there. I was going to ask you how, how on earth you, you learn in the role that has been moulded really for you, or you've moulded yourself, how you learn to react in situations like that when you're dealing firsthand with someone who is going through life-changing trauma and there you know there is there's going to be a dependency on you and the, I guess there's pressure on you just to to not just do the right thing but in the right way and offer, offer it in the right way it, it's strange again I'll use Mossy and I'll use another example where um, it's, it's completely different um, uh, the lads who have been in Moss's position often tell me they're more worried about the, the partner and paying the mortgage and what happens next. So we take away that worry as, as an instance and we concentrate on them getting better. Uh, and I remember Pete Stevenson and, and Jimmy Kitten saying to me, uh, you know, when we used to lay at bed at night for hours on end, we used to tell our big toe uh, to wiggle. Something as bizarre as that. Uh, if you could wiggle, you, if you could get a message from your head to your big toe, you were doing you were doing a lot better than just moving your big toe. Um, and I passed that message on very early uh, to Mossy. What can you feel? What can you move? Uh, everything was a bonus. I took Pete Stevenson with me uh, to visit him once, 
Pete had a very, very similar injury to Mossy. And Mossy could say that this lad, who would have the same injury as he, could sit down, stand up, and make his way to the car. Uh, now, that, that doesn't cost a great deal of money. That, that's using some expertise that you've got uh, and encouragement to others. Uh, that was one case of Mossy. One of the, the proudest things I've, I've, I've done uh, was when um, the Cumbrian shootings, if you remember, there was a taxi driver called yeah. Derek Bird uh, who indiscriminately shot and killed about 13 people. And one of those was a lad called Gary Purdom, who was a, a, a farmer who played for Whitehaven and Workington and, and had uh, serious connections with Egremont. And I remember seeing his, his wife like two days after your husband's been shot in the most tragic of circumstances. Uh, and I, I felt the emotion. I genuinely said all the things I'm saying to you, but with tears in my eyes and, and tears coming down my eyes. Uh, and the family said to, to me afterwards, they appreciated the fact I wasn't just coming round and saying the words, that I felt something and that I, I worked upon the emotion and the emotion of, uh, of, of the rugby league family in saying, you've got two lads here, eight and two, we'll do everything possible we can to support you and those two lads like it was any other uh, player, whether he plays for an amateur club or a professional club. You know, what's happened to your family is wrong and we're here to support you. I, I remember those, um, the, the shooting, Steve, really clearly. Um, I actually, One I of the, for instances, and you spoke what experience have, have you got? Yeah. Um, I still, I spoke to, to Ros's wife mm. uh, yesterday, in fact, because um, the lad's just gone through uh, secondary school and taken his, his A-levels and uh, uh, comically, he calls me Uncle Stevie, but uh, I think... <laughs> I Uncle think Steve. <laughs> I think I've, I've christened myself as Uncle Stevie anyway, but uh, uh, I remember saying to her when the funeral took place, uh, how many people do you think will come? She says, well, we're a, we're a small, tight-knit family. She says, no more than a couple of dozen. So I, uh, I looked at her and I thought, well, there'll, there'll be hundreds there. I said, well, just uh, indulge me. Uh, we'll order all the... Uh, cards and we'll put a PA system out just in case more people come uh, because they want to show the respects to Gary. She said, oh, I don't, you know, there won't be many people. As it, as it turned out, she took my advice uh, and there were 2,000 people yeah. at the church. Um, absolutely incredible. And it's that understanding. They didn't come because he was a rugby league player. They became to show respect for the family, uh, and it was quite, you know, it was very emotional. Uh, and I thought to myself, with all these people, you can tell almost like a big game. Uh, if you've got queues at the turnstile two hours before, and you're going to have thousands of people there, and the, they were queuing down the street, uh, and it, uh, I was, I was, it was very proud. I was very proud in thinking the rugby league have helped organise this because the family would have been in real trouble otherwise just dealing with that when their emotions were so high. My, my experience at that time, Steve, and I, I just moved down to London. I think 07, I moved down to London from Yorkshire, made the big leap to try and try and go down there for work. And I, 
I was friends at the time with Luke Dawn, who, who played yeah. a, a London Harlequins, and through him got to know Rob Purdom um, quite well. And obviously, Gary was, was, his, was his brother. Yeah. And um, I remember when it happened, and you know, this is the way journalism operates. People in the office knew I was mates with, that, with, with, with Luke and with Rob. And all they wanted to know is, can you get the interview? And yeah. that put me in a really difficult position. Because just like you're outlining there, you just think, what is, what is he going through? And what is that family go through? And then the other side of it, you know, the journalism pressure to use your contact to get a story. And I found I, I really struggled with that. And I didn't, know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to, you, do you know what I mean? It's like, you, you, you just outlined how you reached out. And it, I've been told it's interesting to go and try and get an interview. People were ringing the bell. Um, his wife was a, a teacher at the time. Yeah. Yeah. There were journalists in, in the playground asking the kids. His dad was a farmer. There was a journalist uh, at the end of his track. Uh, and all they wanted to do was like bury themselves and hide themselves away for a time. Yeah. Uh, but we produced things like family statements because we appreciate it. Uh, journalists have a job to do, people want to know, but just controlling the media as, as best as we could, informing them of, of, of what we were doing, but protecting the family at all time, and more importantly, protecting the two young lads at eight and two, not just for that week, that month, that year, uh, but hopefully until they reach the stage where they didn't need protection anymore. Yeah, it's, it's, it's finding that balance, isn't it, between support and an intrusion because you need yeah. to let, you need to from from the personal side l let people know that you're there you might you know they might not want to talk to you but you want them to know you are there and you are there yeah, to help it's absolutely kind of we, line. Uh, we put on a, one of the, the the golden times i remember was that uh Wilkinson and whitehaven and Egremont came together uh and we put on a, a match uh cumbria, cumbria versus england uh, Steve McNamara, to his credit, brought an England side down to play. Uh, and we raised £83,000 at a game um, uh, for, for Gary. Uh, again, to put in a trust fund for his two kids. Uh, and seeing, you know, arch enemies, and often, um, I dare say, sometimes foolish enemies. Um, you know, there's a lot more unites Whitehaven and Workington that keeps them apart. Uh, but they came together for, for that that player's family uh, and she calls it good money you know it, it was raised with the best intention uh, and everybody came together just to, to honour it and at the same time have fun uh, and respect rugby league as well as those people that play it. Did that awful experience of that time uh, and, and the relationship you forged with and the support you were able to give the Purdon family uh, did that did that help you when uh, three years later we lost Steve Prescott? Uh, Steve Prescott uh, was a, a great character. Um, the Prescott Foundation um, is is one of the biggest fundraisers for the Benevolent Fund. Now uh, it raises uh, between forty and eighty thousand pounds per year uh, for the Benevolent Fund, and Steve Prescott more than anybody else I know, completely got what the Benevolent Fund was all about. It was all about inclusion. 
uh, it was all about bringing people back into the game. And some of these challenges, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll use Pete Stevenson and Jimmy Kittens uh, and, and others who took part in, in them. He brought them back into the game. He supported them. He, he, he knew what to say to, to every one of them. Uh, he was a great, great man. Uh, and at the same time, probably didn't realise what an impact he was having upon everybody. Uh, and I still work with uh, some of his colleagues at, at the uh, SPF, you know, the Martin Blondells of this world, who, who still support us. And, and dealing with, with uh, Steve Prescott was a breath of fresh air. And he gave us, uh, you know, a driving force behind us to think this is what we're doing is right. Uh, and he, he contributed at that time half of, of whatever the Steve Prescott uh, Fund made uh, to the Benevolent Fund, and we continue to benefit from that. He was a great man. And his son is now kind of taking on the baton. I don't know if you've seen, Steve, that what Taylor Prescott has just announced that he's doing in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's always onerous for a son or a daughter yeah. to emulate his, his uh, you know, successful uh, parents. So I can only tip my cap to him and say, well done, Taylor. And, and Kobe's brother uh, will no doubt follow in his line. And, and Lindsay is just a special person anyway. So every year uh, we take uh, Steve's immediate family to Wembley just as a thank you. And they uh, are just, as, as we were to them, they're much as a part of our family as we are to them. Yeah, Taylor Prescott is just about to run seven ultra, ultra marathons in seven days for a virtual to get virtually from St Helens to Wembley for the day that the Cup final should have been on. And let me tell you, having spent last summer with him cycling through France, he will do it because I'm he sure has he that mentality. Sure for a man who struggles to take his dog around the park, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have some empathy with him and, and uh, complete admiration. Well, Taylor Taylor doesn't run more than ten k, and he just said in the way he does. Oh, I just popped out for a 22-miler and I felt fine, so I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may have left it too late in the day for a 22-miler at my age, but I'll, I'll be with him in spirit. Um, this is all... I mean, the work that you do is, is remarkable, fantastic, and it's all about the inclusivity and incredibly selfless. But... You must personally get a lot of pride from it. That's one of the great things about working in the field like you do and the giving aspect of, I don't know, whether it's fundraising or support. Individually, that must give you a real lift. I, I enjoy it, although it's really demanding at times. I don't enjoy it as such when you stand by somebody's bed after they've had such an injury. Um, but you think, I'm a, I can make a difference here. Uh, and I take great satisfaction in knowing that after a visit, from, not necessarily from me, but from the Benevolent Fund, uh, that it will give them some comfort, it will help steer them. Um, I've said it before, uh, we aren't there to change anything, we can't change anything, but sometimes we can take the sharpest corners away from families, uh, and that's often in a help. And the journey is a very lonely one, um, you know, and, and we're there for the long term, and the, the satisfaction that that brings when we see people reconstitute their lives as well. It's not necessarily about the, the physicalness uh, of, of their injuries. Uh, we've seen lads go to university, retrain, uh, 
uh, from doing um, media degrees for a, an, a, an electrician uh, who, who could never work again effectively. We re retrained him uh, in, into doing something different to being an architect as such. Uh, Matt King, who was uh, a civilian as you can imagine, uh, he re retrained and has, has worked as a uh, as a, a lawyer and a solicitor for people in similar circumstances as himself, those that had catastrophic injuries. So it, it's not necessarily all about the physical side, it's about the emotional side as well, uh, because often these lads did, uh, as, as, as you would do, as I would do, as you would do. And as important, uh, making sure that the new normal is something that they can have a contribution to uh, and that they can retrain and they can go out and they can uh, find new partners and, and lead a new life. And that's all very exciting. And uh, I share some of that excitement with them uh, because I've become great friends with a great many of them. Yeah, I was going to say the word fulfillment. It strikes me that, that your role as demanding is as it must be, is also incredibly fulfilling. It, it is, and, and uh, you can see where you've been sometimes. You can see uh, with people's journeys. Mossy is a good example. His journey is relatively short. I mean, he only got injured in January, and it's uh, the be beginning of, of July now. Uh, his journey's been a, a tremendous one, but sometimes the journey is a lifelong journey, and uh, you can see the progression in people step by step sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back uh, and i'm proud to call many of them my friends and my heroes in, in rugby league uh, originally they used to be the billy boston's neil uh, fox and roger millwards of this world but uh, these lads to me are as much a hero as anybody who's played the game are you the kind of person who who tries to find hope in every situation? Um, I try to find uh, a lighter side. Uh, hope, hope is a, a different word, you know, when things go wrong, you know, you say to people, I, I never say to people, I know how you feel, because I have no idea. Uh, I can say, I can only imagine how you feel. Uh, because we don't know how people feel. Uh, and we, we, you know, we, we try to understand but it's, it's very difficult. So if I can shine a light on things that are remotely funny or something that they can smile about or something optimistic in the future, uh, I enjoy it. And that's why occasions such as the grand final at Old Trafford where we go to and we go to uh, Wembley as I've spoken before, the great days for me. It's uh, deaf lads having a great weekend and that's always something to look forward to. That's, that's a key point, actually, that you've just made, that you, you can't ever say to someone, I know how you feel, because, you, yes, you draw on your own experiences, but even if you're drawing on experience where you've been in exactly the same situation, you can only remember how you felt in that situation. You don't know how that person is feeling in the same situation. Absolutely, and everybody's circumstances are different, and everybody's uh, mental state is, is, is different. Um, and I speak to people... Uh, and I tell them the truth. I don't hide uh, anything, uh, you know. I don't try to gloss things up. Uh, and I've learned things over a period of the last 10, 15 years as such. But for example, if, I, if somebody's seriously injured, 
uh, I don't say to him, how are you? Uh, because he could well look at me and say, how the heck do you think? I've, you know, yeah. I've broken my spine. But if I say to him, how are you today? That's a completely different question. And it's just understanding the nuances of, of, of conversation, uh, of, of being in their position, and just trying to understand, you know, uh, and a lot of the people in, in these circumstances, fit, strong, athletic human beings have to learn literally baby steps in how to get the life back together. And that takes a long time and it's something that you can't rush. So, uh, you know, uh, my daughter, who's a lot brighter than me, calls me an active listener. Uh, and I think that's a good description. I, I like listening to what people say. Uh, and when I go see people, uh, it's, it's bizarre. I talk about rugby league for 50 minutes and now they are for 10 minutes. Uh, and I'm not there as a social worker, I'm there as a, a rugby league person who cares. And, and I think uh, everybody in rugby league can identify with that. You know, we want to know what you think. You have an opinion about whether Wigan's try in the corner was, uh, <laughs> should have been allowed on. <laughs> the video referee should be banned or whatever. Uh, they enjoy all those conversations. But at the end, the meaningful last 10 minutes is, is what it's all about. Um, and that's understanding people, and that's understanding rugby league people as well. Uh, what have you made of um, Rob Burrow and how he has responded to what was the most devastating of, of diagnoses? Again, an incredible situation. Uh, you know, uh, Rob's disease, which other players uh, have suffered from over the years. Uh, the coming round together, I think he was very lucky in it. Leeds Rhinos uh, was tremendous to him. But the love is felt from all over the country. Uh, I've visited him in his, his house as a friend. I know his dad, Jeff, very well, uh, and his family. He has tremendous resource, great courage. Uh, and it's, it's a scary time for, for Rob as it would be for, for everybody. But what it does see time and time again is that rugby league people pulling together uh, and the fact you can have so many people at a Bradford friendly game that they could have sold out and sold twice after. Uh, and just the organisational of ordinary skills of ordinary people who just want to say, I'm thinking about you and I want to help you as best as I can. Absolutely tremendous. Uh, there are a lot of Rob Burrows all over the country uh, with, with, with uh, a similar sort of, of, of uh, life-changing disease. But what makes Rob special is, is that he was a special person and a special family as well. Uh, and again, Leeds Rhinos can be very proud of what they've done for him, but so can the whole of rugby league. Yeah, you're absolutely right um, about, about the Burrows. How do you, how do you relax? What you've just described and what you go through every day, seeing these people face to face and the, the awful hands they've been dealt must be all consuming. And obviously there's a danger that the impact it might have on you. So how do you keep yourself going and how do you make sure that your stress bucket keeps flowing in the right direction? Uh, I love laughing. I love a little bit of fun. You'll, you'll be surprised at this. Uh, I live up in Hexham. Uh, I get involved in the uh, community centre, which I've of the trustees. And we've just started playing rugby 
at Hexham Middle School. So it's a bit self-indulgent. Uh, I watch all their matches. There's a, a mad king lad called Cal uh, Barry, uh, who organises all the teams. They're all of a, a, a muchness, in, in truth. Uh, he organises them a bit better than the other teams. And I love going to watch it. It's, uh, it's pure rugby league. Uh, it brings none of the baggage that some of the northern uh, clubs and schools might have. It's people who are enthusiastic about a game that they haven't played for. Uh, and this year, um, we'd organised 100 kids from Hexham, which is near Newcastle, uh, to go watch the Rugby League Cup final, which would have been in a couple of weeks' time. We got them all special hats. 100 kids from one school is, is something else. So we're hoping we can transfer that later uh, to a match, wherever it is. Uh, but I relax by watching kids playing rugby league. That's really sad, isn't it? <laughs> that is the most rugby league answer ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a final thought then, um, Steve, if I asked you what, what your attitude on, attitude to and outlook on life was, well, what would you say? That's a difficult one. Um, I think you always start with yourself. Uh, always be the best you can for, for you. And sometimes I let myself down uh, in, in various ways and I think things and uh, don't behave as well as I could do. But in anything I do, I look at myself first and try to, uh, to spread that out. That's why I like getting involved in, in community stuff. You know, one person can do a lot more good if he shares that with 10 other people who then share it with 10 others. Um, so just being the best I can, having some fun, enjoying life, having a drink and uh, watching Hexham uh, Middle School and Championship Schools in the future. That's what keeps me going anyway, at least for the time being. I'm very proud uh, to be a senior member of that rugby league family and doing what I do. I love it as a job. I wouldn't want to do anything else. Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, chatting to you today. And, and thank you for the lesson in active listening as well. <laughs> <laughs> I told you my daughter was a lot brighter than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steve Ball, you've been brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.